2: Alistair Jackson is a highly experienced investigative journalist. For years he's worked as a producer and a reporter for BBC's flagship investigative show, Panorama. With years of reporting under his belt, Alistair has a well-trained nose for a story. And he's all too aware that inspiration for an investigation can come in many forms.
3: Some people come to you with information and then others can be totally self-driven by the producer or journalist who has an idea that matures into something, so it can be a combination of anything.
2: But a few years ago, something happened that would set Alistair off on an investigation that was like nothing he'd done before. What happened was the worst thing imaginable. I'm Maeve McLennigan. This is The Tip-Off. It was November. And Alistair was enjoying a family holiday in Dorset with his wife and children. When out of the blue, he got a phone call from his brother.
3: One of those terrible phone calls that you always fear as you have elderly parents, that my mum was pretty ill in hospital in the Midlands where I'm from. Um, The first call was that she's had a funny turn, she's been taken into hospital, but you don't need to worry too much. And then a few hours later I got a much more serious phone call, which made it pretty clear that I needed to get in the car.
2: Trying to fight the feeling of rising dread, Alistair started the long drive up to the Midlands.
3: It was a horrible uh, November evening and it was, as you can imagine, felt a very long drive going up there.
2: Arriving at Queen's Hospital in Burton-upon-Trent, Alistair was told that Margaret, his 78-year-old mother, had been brought into hospital the day before, but had rapidly deteriorated. As Alistair sat with her, surrounded by machines and monitors, an Australian nurse, didn't offer up much hope. Your mother is very ill indeed, she told Alistair.
3: And over the course of a weekend, my mum never really got better. One time I got there, she'd had a serious uh, heart attack and I was with her over the weekend when she passed away.
2: Margaret was 78, but until that point she'd been relatively healthy. She'd had a hip replacement, but had recovered well and was fairly active. Later, Alistair's father would tell him about how quickly she had gone downhill.
4: She woke up in the morning and said, I've never felt as ill as this before. And that was when I sprang into action to uh, dial the NHS emergency number. And
3: did you think that she was like potentially seriously ill at that point? No, absolutely
4: not, because she walked herself downstairs uh, and got into the ambulance. Mm.
3: And then she became slightly incoherent
4: gasping for breath, actually. She quite clearly said to me at one point, oh, God, is this the end? And I said, no, don't be silly, of course it's not. And I think were virtually the last words she ever uttered.
2: Alistair's brother told him he'd seen things in a hospital he wasn't happy about. Like the time he'd called a nurse and she'd had problems finding blood pressure readings and then couldn't find a panic button to raise the alarm with doctors. As the family tried to process their grief, those things kept weighing on Alistair's mind.
3: It was a general sort of feeling that perhaps things hadn't happened as well as they could have done, and they wanted, and we all wanted, an explanation for how someone can go from being told that actually this is okay and there'll be some treatment happening next week, they they thought it was um, an issue to do with their heart, to within... 48 hours being dead.
2: Alistair wanted answers, so he and his brother started by lodging a complaint with the NHS's Patient Advice and Liaison Service. They were asking for a review of their mother's case and a clearer explanation of how she could have gone downhill quite so quickly. It was many months later when Alistair and his brother found themselves back at the hospital where Margaret had died. There, In a nondescript meeting room, they met with the consultant and some of the other staff members that had treated Margaret.
3: And we were given a version of events that was basically, you might have a number of health uh, issues. She came into hospital with those issues and she had a massive heart attack. And yes, there were some things that we could have done better. But broadly, it was that we chose to treat her for um, a condition with the heart. We were waiting for... Some more further investigations, and very unfortunately, while she was in hospital, she had a massive heart attack. And we take what you say seriously about things we could have done better, but actually, you know, we're very, very sorry, and um, we know this is difficult for you, but this must be, uh, you know, broadly, this is what we, we, we did, and we stand by what we did.
2: The doctors were professional and seemed genuinely empathetic, but as Alistair and his brother made their way out of the hospital, Alistair couldn't shake the feeling that something wasn't right.
3: But I do remember very vividly walking across the car park at the hospital with my brother and turning to say to my brother, I hope this isn't my job infecting my opinion of what's gone on in that room, but I have a strong feeling that we're not being told the full story. So I guess this whole thing started really in that car park, with that that feeling, and I was at that point hoping that I was wrong.
5: Alistair is an
2: investigative journalist. He's trained to ask questions, challenge perceived wisdom, and hold power to account. Usually, the first whiff of a possible story can bring excitement and enthusiasm. But this was very different.
3: It was an odd feeling because of, in this particular case, I was hoping that I wasn't right, and I was a long way off the mark. Um, I guess normally in the day job, you'd be thinking, I... I hope I'm right about this because I'll be proved right and I'll, and that will make a nice uh, and important panorama. Um, perhaps I wasn't thinking about panoramas at this point, but I was certainly hoping I was wrong.
2: Travelling back to London, Alistair tried to focus on other things. He couldn't be sure if it was grief clouding his judgement. We've all heard about the various stages, anger, denial, bargaining. Perhaps these nagging suspicions were part of that process. But Alistair couldn't help but feel like he'd had these kind of doubts before.
3: I say to people that it felt very similar to a meeting I had at News International once when we were told there was just one rogue reporter f- uh, hacking phones, etc. And obviously that is being very unkind to the people in the hospital. I don't mean to put them, the two together, but it was it, what I mean is the feeling was quite similar uh, of thinking that this, this is perhaps isn't the whole story. And... I drove up, me and my brother sort of went our separate ways from that meeting and I couldn't really put that feeling to the back of my mind. So I guess a meeting that was designed to put a full stop on things and to give me and my family the explanation for what happened actually did exactly the reverse.
2: Hoping he was wrong, Alistair started out on an unintentional investigation, an attempt to piece together some of the jigsaw of what had happened to his mother that cold weekend in November. His father, as next of kin, had applied for and been sent to her medical records. And so Alistair had a huge stack of scrappily written notes, which he pored over and tried to make sense of. He enlisted the help of a friend who worked as a nurse in intensive care. So one evening, they found themselves hunched over the notes spread out all across the kitchen table of his London home.
3: And she, I think, was probably trying to raise some concern, but without being too upsetting, you know, but I could tell from her the little things she said and the things she drew my attention to, that she wasn't at all happy with what um, what she saw in the notes.
2: There was a lot of information to take in, but amongst it all, this nurse mentioned a word that kept coming up in all the reading Alistair was doing. A word that would result in this personal tragedy turning into a nationwide investigation, into a hidden killer. The word, sepsis. Sepsis is the body's overreaction to any infection. Instead of white blood cells treating an infection in one part of the body, the infection can spread, leading the immune system to go into overdrive. The inflammation and obstruction to blood flow that causes can then result in multiple organ failure. It's a tragic complication, but not one without its warning signs. And if it's caught early, there can be a much higher chance of treating it.
6: We can look for one of the six signs that indicate that this might be sepsis. And they spell the word sepsis. So we have S for slurred speech or confusion. E for extreme pain in the muscles or joints. P for passing no urine, no water in a whole day. The second S for severe breathlessness. I for it feels like you're going to die and the final for skin that's mottled or discoloured, or indeed has that rash that doesn't fade under a glass.
2: Dr Ron Daniels works for the NHS as a consultant in intensive care. In 2012, he set up the UK Sepsis Trust, after watching, in his words, one too many people die needlessly. One day, he took a call from Alistair, asking him to look through his mother's medical notes.
6: And I have to say, I'm quite used to receiving requests for information from journalists. So the fact that an investigative journalist had emailed me didn't come as a surprise. But when I read, and it was highly personal, and he was obviously troubled around circumstances that had led to his mum's death, it became apparent that he, like so many others, was someone who'd been personally touched by this.
2: There in the notes was a warning sign.
6: The medical team at one point clearly were thinking sepsis but there seemed to have been a significant delay between them thinking sepsis, prescribing the antibiotics and those antibiotics actually being administered. Now it's impossible to say whether that would have had a causative relationship to her death but it is entirely possible and it certainly wouldn't have helped her chances. It
2: showed that when Margaret had been admitted to hospital there were warning signs that should have meant that sepsis was considered straight away and indeed later doctors had prescribed potentially life-saving antibiotics but they had not been administered until many hours later.
6: Evidence shows us that for every hour we delay in giving antibiotics to people with sepsis and particularly people with sepsis and low blood pressure or septic shock results in an increase in their risk of death.
2: Alistair remembers getting Ron's thoughts on the records back via email,
3: and, and as you'd expect, he was careful to point out that these things are difficult, and it wasn't uh, he wasn't there, but he did he did um, make it clear that he thought that sepsis was an issue in terms of my mother had showed the signs of sepsis as they would understand them, and that that should have triggered a certain response on admission to hospital, and it hadn't.
2: So Alistair and his brother set up another meeting with the hospital. This time, the staff there confirmed that Margaret had shown signs of sepsis and that more should have been done to treat it, including administering the antibiotics sooner.
3: So, you know, that was quite shocking in itself, actually, because of that was, a, that was the first confirmation that the version of events was different to what we'd been told in that room. So, of course, that immediately triggers lots more questions. Uh, and I suppose at that point, I'd realised that my instinct was, was right and that I wanted to get to the bottom
2: of it. Frustrated, Alistair and his brother put in subject access requests to the hospital. Now that's a mechanism that allows you to ask a government or public body for any information they hold on you specifically. In this case, the request showed Alistair a series of emails between various members of the hospital staff where they were discussing his and his brother's inquiries. But even then it wasn't the whole story.
3: And there was one particular thing that struck me. I was I was going through in detail the email chains, and I realised that there was one email missing. They didn't follow sequentially. There was a, there was a gap. And again, this is something we've come across before in in panoramas. That you think you've got the whole stuff, and and actually, when you look at it carefully, you realise there's something missing. So I then made a further request for that. And of course, when that email was eventually dropped, it was it was the, um, a senior member of staff confirming that had my mother had better treatment, she may well have lived. So when I got that document in, in the envelope, you know, that was very, very hard to get your head around, really. And to this day, I still find that quite hard to accept.
2: As all this went on, Alistair was reading round about the condition. He found that sepsis accounts for more than 44,000 deaths in the UK every year. And at around 14,000 of those, could have been prevented if hospitals were better at spotting the signs early.
3: Um, And reading all that, it then made me realise that how can you... If you're a panorama producer and reporter, and it's staring you in the face that if someone else was calling you in the office with this story, you'd be saying to the editor, I think this is something we should be looking at. So in a way, it was a kind of odd position because of knowing that you'd happened upon something, which was pretty awful in your family's circumstances, but also being a journalist thinking, this is an issue, um, but do I want to go there? It was quite a difficult decision for me to take to pitch it to start with.
2: Alistair talked it all over with senior staff at Panorama, and they agreed that this was an important issue with real public interest that deserved exploration. So Alistair was paired up with experienced producer Claire Burnett, and together they started to explore how sepsis is managed and treated all across the country. Claire spoke to charities and lawyers, and soon found multiple cases where failing to spot signs of sepsis had had tragic consequences. She and Alistair went travelling all over the UK to meet people whose lives had been impacted by the condition, like Tom Ray, who lost all four limbs and a lot of muscle and skin across his face after contracting the condition. Or the heartbreaking case of Melissa Mead, whose one-year-old son William died of sepsis. Melissa told Alistair on camera how William's death had been registered as natural causes, until an inquest revealed the true case was sepsis.
3: Like me, his mother Melissa had to fight to discover the truth about what had happened.
2: I stopped counting at 600 emails in, I think, three months. They have this train of thought, it seemed to me, that, okay, something's gone wrong here. What what is the least amount we can do or least amount of information that we can give that will make
5: these people go away?
2: It was then Alistair realised that the estimated figures he'd read could be a huge underestimate. Elderly patients, like his mother, would rarely have an inquest and so there could be even more cases where treating for sepsis could have saved lives. During one interview, Alistair was struck by an echo of the words his father had used. Angela Meehan's husband, Dean, contracted sepsis after having surgery on a broken hip. She described just what Dean was telling doctors before he died.
5: He said he felt
0: ill.
2: He'd never felt so ill. Alistair's father had described his mum as saying almost exactly the same thing.
4: She woke up in the morning and said, I've never felt as ill as this before.
3: Well, that that actually is um, one of the classic signs of someone who has sepsis. So the parallels in each case were very strong, as you say. Yeah.
2: Doing these kind of interviews is always hard. There's a line to be drawn between empathy and professionalism. Sometimes you have to prompt people into memories they'd rather not recall sometimes you have to ask them to repeat things that were clearly painful to say the first time but for alister sat across from melissa or tom or angela there was an added sense of empathy and a deep connection he remembers finding the interview with melissa the mother of one-year-old william particularly tough
3: and then we you know we were we were realizing together in the interview that for all the campaigning and change that she's and others are trying to do there's still an issue here um people are still dying unnecessarily and obviously coming to that conclusion with both our joint experiences in the interview um was was quite difficult and it's obviously for her and me this stuff is always quite difficult to talk about there'd been lots of people saying that we needed to improve years before her son died and years before my mum died and obviously that journey of understanding is a difficult one. And when you talk about that stuff, and Melissa spoke to me, it was very difficult for her because of you are you articulating the, the, the fact that more could have been done.
2: As well as the many interviews with bereaved relatives, Alistair and his producer Claire were digging into official reports. They managed to get hold of figures from NHS England, which showed sepsis cases broken down by each NHS acute hospital trust. It was a huge Excel spreadsheet with rows and rows of data, broken down by each quarter of the year and by hospital. And the data showed both screening figures and the rate at which people suspected of having sepsis were getting antibiotics within an hour. It was a lot of information.
3: Numbers are not my strong point, and my friends who were at school with me will tell you that's very much the case. So yeah, it was I guess it was it was It's always scary for me personally to get, and it was, it came uh, in a a big spreadsheet, which to my mind was incomprehensible to start with. Um, But our our researcher who was brilliant and also um, the BBC's head of statistics helped to interpret these things. And there was conversations back with NHS England to make sure we were understanding them right.
2: The data wasn't perfect. Different hospitals collect information in different ways. But still, the figures seemed to show some hospitals doing much worse than others. From 104 hospital trusts, 10 said they'd identified every suspected case of sepsis. But for 14 of the trusts, the detection rate was just 50%. Meaning for every two people with sepsis, just one was spotted. Amongst all that data were the figures for Queen's Hospital, where Alistair's mother had died. Keen to put the case to the hospital on camera, Panorama approached Queen's and set up a meeting. Dr Magnus Harrison, the hospital's new medical director, agreed to an on-camera interview.
3: How many people were coming here that should have been screened for sepsis and weren't?
6: So if I look at our data, for the first quarter of 1617, only 1% of people were being appropriately screened when we looked at our audit data.
3: You see, that's what, nearly two years since my mother died here. Yes and you're still screening at that point 1% of people? Yeah. So why wasn't that problem tackled sooner?
6: Um, I think it was being tackled, it's just whether it was being tackled effectively. It's, it's not that we turned a blind eye to it at all, we were aware of it and it was just getting the right things in place to allow the screening to be there. Did we address it as quick as we could have done? Probably not.
2: The hospital went on to say it's making vast improvements and is now identifying 99% of emergency patients with the signs of sepsis. Then there were filmed interviews with top experts and academics. Dr Ron Daniels from the UK Sepsis Trust, who first confirmed to Alistair that there were issues with his mother's case, did a filmed interview with the team. And then Alistair got confirmation of another important interview. The health secretary, Jeremy Hunt, had agreed to sit down with the journalists. So camera equipment and notes in hand, the Panorama team headed off across London to the Department of Health in Whitehall.
3: And actually, you can imagine, for me going in there, obviously, as Panorama producer and reporter, those types of interviews, uh, we've done loads of them, but it was quite an odd feeling going in there, thinking I've come from uh, a November evening you know, one of the worst the worst weekend of my life in a hospital in the Midlands, walking in to interview the health secretary about what had gone on. So if nothing else, I suppose that gives you the tremendous privilege of being a journalist to enable you to do to do that.
2: In the interview, Hunt told Alistair that things were changing
3: We have let down too many people over too many years. But I think the story over the last two years is that
0: we've Um, introduced standards now and uh, we think we've saved nearly a thousand lives as a result of the changes we brought in since 2015. But does that mean that we are still losing lives today because uh, not everywhere is uh, matching the standards of the best places? I'm afraid it does and so there's a lot more work to do.
2: So now Alistair and Panorama team had data showing hospitals performing at different rates. They had interviews with leading figures in the health sector and powerfully emotional stories from people who had lost family members to the condition. But there was another element of the film that was harder, something most journalists never have to deal with. How, how did you get to the stage of, I guess, talking to your, your brother and your father about interviewing them for it? And...
3: It was difficult to, talk, to go to say to my brother, and particularly my father, I'm thinking of making a panorama. About about what's happened to us and what's happening to other people and how things can improve. And there's a number of reasons for that because if, first of all you're saying probably the worst thing that's happened to our family I want to put on television. And it, it, for me I can probably more easily say because I'm a journalist that's what I do I'll make that leap. But for other family members who don't do that it's why would you want to go there? You know we've had a terrible two years and um, and. But beyond that, for people of my father's generation, I think there is the sort of, we we trust the hospitals, we trust people to tell us the truth, and anything else is really uh, stirring up trouble. And I think my dad would say that that was his starting point. Andrew and I started looking at what had gone. Did you ever expect that we might find something like this?
4: No, I didn't.
3: That I knew it wouldn't have been her wish to
4: stir up trouble and difficulties for anybody. And then, as the situation unfolded, I became grateful to you for doing it because I could see the public necessity to focus on this uh, and prevent other people from suffering as as we undoubtedly Mm. did.
3: Just as for my dad, it was a difficult thing to get a head head around. I had some strange responses from friends of mine and and, and other journalists. I think there is something about journalism and the health service and the NHS, this particularly cherished organisation. And not every reaction I had was entirely positive about doing a film or taking my personal case that is effectively knocking the NHS, you could argue. I mean, I would say it's highlighting the good practice that's going on and pointing out that there needs to be more good practice and less covering things up. But for me, it was quite enlightening to have close friends and colleagues been quite negative on why are you knocking our beloved NHS?
2: On the 10th of September last year, the Panorama aired. The day before, Alistair had written a moving piece in the mail on Sunday. After nearly three years of investigation, pulling all the pieces together, Alistair had laid out a pervasive and troubling pattern of failures to learn from preventable sepsis deaths. Finishing any investigation can bring a mixture of emotions, and often journalists find they need time to decompress. But seeing photos of his mother and family in happier times projected large onto TV screens made for a particularly emotional finale.
3: But I guess, yes, seeing it on the page was another sort of moment where you, despite the fact you've been making this thing for so long, it suddenly starts to, to be real because it's kind of outside your world now it's on the on the news spread over two pages of a newspaper often when the film goes out we might have a sit around the television watch it with a couple of drinks or something you know but on this occasion it was you know to be honest all i wanted to do was sort of go home and shut the door you know and just um watch it (laughs)
2: It had taken months of work on the TV show and years before that to put all the pieces together and make some kind of sense of his mother's death. And since then, how has it been going back to investigations where you have, you know, <laughs> critical distance, I
3: guess? It's been difficult, actually. Um, uh, you know, when you've, if you've, when you've made a panorama about your mother's death, it's quite hard to move on from that. Um but um, you do move on, obviously, and the response to the film has been um, really helpful because of, say, helpful because of you know I've not had thousands of emails saying it's not a, not a problem. I've had hundreds of emails. One came in this morning uh, with people with similar, almost mirror experiences at hospitals around the country. So you so that would tell you that you were right to highlight the issue, I think. And equally, I've had some very hard Heartening and nice responses from people in the NHS. So, you know, that, that helps you sort of move on from it away and and knowing that it's had to a small degree, you know, some impact in keeping
2: the issue alive. That's all for this episode. There's links to the panorama and the pieces Alistair wrote, and a link to the UK Sepsis Trust in the show notes. Next time. So we have a somewhat sinister wall of death on our, uh, on our office wall with, with photographs of all of the people involved in this network, not just the people who died, but also other people who kind of are, you know, the connections between those individuals. Bloodied shoes, a mobile phone, and 250 boxes of documents. How the Buzzfeed UK investigations team revealed a horrifying trail of Russian assassinations on British soil. The Tip-Off is hosted and produced by me, Maeve McLennigan, with production support from Chica Airs. You can find us on Twitter, at Tip-Off Podcast, and please, please, if you have a spare minute, leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps guide people to the show. This is The Tip-Off.